0: Good to see everybody here today, and appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and just be able to share a few things from God's Word. You know, when the Lord was here on earth, and He taught His people, He used a lot of analogies and a lot of comparisons, and He did that mainly because we were so simple-minded that we could not understand heavenly things, so He would use earthly things as an example for us to be able to understand He would, for example, when he was around farmers, he would use an agricultural example like, let's say, planting seeds. Mm -hmm. But then when he would go into the city, he would talk about buildings. And he would try to match the crowd with the type of example that he gives. And there was no difference in the Old Testament economy. Uh, The Lord certainly used Old Testament prophets and gave them examples that people could understand. As we begin to study our word today, I want you to kind of keep that in mind, and I also want to give you a fair warning. You know, when you hear the preaching of the word, or you read God's word, it'll do one of three things to you, depending on your attitude. It'll either make you mad, sad, or glad. And I pray that as we go through this passage of scripture, which is a very familiar passage of scripture, that it certainly will be the part where you're glad to hear it. So I pray that the Lord will prepare our hearts for that as we go through that, when we look at God's Word, we always want to look for comfort and hope and encouragement. And I don't think there's any other passage of Scripture that does that better than the 23rd Psalm. So if you would turn to Psalm 23, I know it's a familiar passage of Scripture, but there's a lot there. You know, you can never exhaust all the things in Scripture. There's always something fresh and new when you're reading the same passage of Scripture over and over. And so as we read through this, just uh, follow along with me if you would. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, something that you have to remember is you have to understand what sheep are all about. In the Bible, the, as far as I can Detect there are only three places in the Bible where God compares us to animals. One of them are baby chicks. The other is baby eagles. And that's only about two or three times each. But the Bible is full of places where God compares us to sheep. And I think we can take a lot of comfort in that if we look at the way sheep are and their relationship with the shepherd. So let's understand five things, first of all, about what sheep are all about. First of all, sheep lack a sense of direction. Sheep wander off and cannot find their way back. That's unlike cats and dogs and other animals that God has given them the ability to be able to find their way around. Sheep are always prone to wander. And the only way they can get their way back is if the shepherd goes and gets them and brings them back. The second thing would be that sheep are completely defenseless. They have no way to protect themselves. A lot of animals have claws and teeth or they're real fast running. Uh, they have a ferocious growl well sheep don't even have a growl. So they have no way of protection. In fact, the only way they can be protected is to be under the watchful eye care of the shepherd. Another thing sheep are easily frightened. You know sheep instinctively know that they cannot defend themselves. And so when one little tiny thing happens, they are easily panicked. and the only way they can stay protected, And to stay calm is to be close to the shepherd. In fact, when sheep are bedding down at night in the country, any little noise in the night will scare them. Have you ever been like that? But you know what happens? You know what the shepherd does to calm them? He sings to them. And that's what the psalmist David did this psalm all about. It is a song, a sacred song of David. And so the shepherd will sing to the sheep to calm them down. Now, the next one's not really pleasant to hear, but it's important that we know that sheep are of themselves, by nature, unclean. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, most animals will clean themselves. You know, you'll have the cats or the dogs, they'll lick themselves or they'll roll around the grass, those kind of things. And they will clean themselves off. But did you know a sheep will not clean itself? Mm -hmm. The only way that sheep will get clean is if the shepherd does it for them. And that's why sheep are so prone to disease and parasites. The last thing that we want to see about sheep is that sheep cannot find food or water. They have no sense of, great sense of smell or direction. And the only way they can find food is if the shepherd shows them where it's at. In fact, you know, sheep will go and eat poisonous food. And the other sheep will follow in blind herd instinct and eat what the first sheep is doing. And so they'll all die if they don't have someone there to protect them. So as we look at this particular passage of Scripture, I want you to look at it from the sheep's point of view because that's the way it was intended and written. So many times when we look at Scripture like this that's been written so long ago, we hear words and phrases that we're not accustomed to. Probably none of us in here have ever had a firsthand experience at watching sheep and a shepherd firsthand. I know I haven't. And so some of these words and phrases might be hard to understand, but I pray that the Lord will allow us to be able to understand the sheep and the shepherd's relationship as David intended it. So let's look at it verse by verse and see what we can find here with the Lord's help and direction. The Lord is my shepherd. The word the Lord. If you look it up in its original Hebrew, it is Jehovah. Did you know there were many words that expressed who God was, that Jewish people could not even say out loud, they were not permitted to. They were so afraid of offending God by saying his name that they would even say it out loud. The only word they were allowed to say was Jehovah. So the word, the Lord there is Jehovah, which is the most respected title. It means that I am. It means that God is self-existent. Right, notice what comes next. I love the way David sets this thing up. He says, the Lord is who does it say there that the Lord is? He is my shepherd. You know, there are a lot of shepherds out there in the world. And there are a lot of shepherds around. But David says that the Lord is my shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. You know, with a shepherd, so many times a sheep will get so hungry but can't find food. You know what that shepherd will do? That shepherd will take that sheep to a clump of grass and if that sheep will not eat on their own, that shepherd will gently but firmly force them down on the ground so that they can get the nourishment from the grass that's beneath their feet. You know, when we think about that, You know, in our own lives, you know, we live such a fast-paced life, don't we? And what happens is sometimes we don't even take in the spiritual nourishment that we need. We get so wrapped up in our everyday life. And the Lord has to gently but firmly force us to slow down and get nourished by that spiritual food that he gives us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. You know, if you read that as it is literally written, it means that waters that were once moving have been still. Sheep are instinctively afraid of running water. And the reason for that is they know that if they get caught in moving water, that they'll get waterlogged and drown and die. And a sheep could be dying of thirst and stand there and stare at moving water and just die from thirst. So the shepherd steps in, and he takes that rod and staff, and he unhooks all those stones and rocks that are in that area, and he will dam up a little area and calm those waters so that those sheep will feel comfortable enough to drink that refreshment that they need to sustain their lives. And that is certainly the way it is in our lives. You know, when we think about, as we said before, the fast-pacedness of our life, it we have to set aside times to where we can go to those still waters and restore our souls. Right. And that's what Sunday's all about, isn't Amen. it?
1: Amen.
0: It's a time that we can come together and we can sit and drink from those still, quiet waters that the Lord provides for us. It gives us that refreshment that gives us the strength we need to carry on for the next day. So it says that He leadeth me beside the still waters, He restoreth my soul. Restoration, that's a great word, isn't it? He restoreth my soul. You know, the thing about restoration that we have to realize is sheep have a habit of wandering off. What's the song say? Lord, I'm prone to wander. Remember that? I always am prone to go away from the God that I love. And so what we have to see that the shepherd does here in this situation to where it says that he restoreth my soul. A sheep will see a clump of grass and go over and start eating it, not even thinking about the dangers that are around that clump of grass. And then from there, they'll move over to the next one, not even watching how far away they've drifted away from the flock. And what happens is after a period of time, we said before, they look back and they realize that they're lost and they can't find their way back. Notice what happens. The shepherd goes and looks for them and calls them by name. And that shepherd will pick them up, carry them back to the fold. They weren't looking for him. He was looking for them. And he will carry them back. Now, for most sheep, that is a traumatic experience. And after one or two times of getting lost and not being able to find their way back, that sheep learns their lesson and they stay close to the shepherd. But then there are some of those sheep that are prone to wander over and over and over again. And they keep getting lost and lost and lost. And the shepherd keeps bringing them back. You know, sometimes God speaks to us gently when we wander off. But then sometimes we need to have a little bit stronger lesson to convince us that we need to stay in the fold. And you know what that shepherd will do for that sheep that is prone to wander over and over again? he will go and get that sheep. And for the good of the sheep, he has to discipline that sheep a little more drastically. That shepherd will take that sheep that will refuse to stay in the flock and he will take that sheep and pick it up and he'll break its leg. And then he'll take a splint and he'll fix that leg. And then he'll take that sheep and he'll hold it close to his heart and he'll carry it back to the fold. And that sheep has to learn the hard way that he has to depend on the shepherd. And during that restoration time, while he is healing, he is made to stay close to the shepherd. You know, when we look at that and look at that verse again, it says, he restoreth my soul. You know, God does not play games with his wayward sheep. He's going to do whatever it takes to keep his sheep in the fold. And that is something that we can take comfort in, to know that no matter... How far we may stray if we are his children. He will bring us back. It might be in a way that we are not comfortable with. But we can rest assured that he loves us and he cares for us. That's why he holds us so close to his heart. So it says, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice that. It says, he leadeth me. I don't lead him. And it also says that he leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's not doing it for my sake. So many times people get the misunderstanding that when God does things for us, that he's doing it for us. No, he's not doing it for our honor and glory. He's doing it for his honor and glory. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness For his name's sake something else that we can see in that verse it says he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake did you know that a shepherd is a master in reading tracks and if you read this literally it talks about the shepherd leading the sheep down the right set of tracks which are his tracks there are a lot of tracks out there there's wolves tracks There's people tracks. The wind even will make tracks. And the sheep is not smart enough to know the difference between them. And they'll follow this set of tracks, and they'll follow that set of tracks. And most of those tracks lead to nowhere. You ever found that in your life? But even then, more drastically, sometimes those tracks lead to destruction and lead to big problems in our lives. If we want to follow the right tracks, we have to stay close to the shepherd. And that leads us through the right tracks. Now, we kind of change tunes here in verse 4. Now, even though the tune might have changed, notice the shepherd hasn't changed. And we read a a verse here in verse 4. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How does that tie back into verse 3? We already heard that the shepherd leads us in the right tracks. But then it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You've got to remember where we are. We are sheep in a, with the shepherd. And in the, as the summertime begins to come on, the sheep have to be taken to higher, greener pastures. And that shepherd has to take them down through this deep, dark valley to be able to go back up to where the greener pastures are. And so what that shepherd will do is if he's taking them down that right track and they are staying close to that shepherd, even though they're in a scary, dark place like the valley, there's no sunshine, the snows have melted, they got rushing water that makes loud noise, there are wolves and snakes in the bushes, but as long as those sheep stay on that path, they're protected and they stay safe yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil why do they not fear evil? because God is with us we're going to go through some troubles in our life we have in the past, we will in the future, we will have tribulation Mm -hmm. but because it says that God is with us we will not fear, now why can we get comfort in that, where do we get our comfort from, look what it says next, I will fear no evil for thou art with me Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, a shepherd has what's called a rod. It's about two feet long. It's big on one end. It has pieces of metal stuck in the top. And any time some type of animal or another person comes by to bother the shepherd or the sheep, that shepherd takes that rod and he can defend the sheep and himself. In fact, he can stand on one side of the herd and a wolf can come on the other side of the herd and he has been trained to throw that rod and hit that wolf on the other side, and it will go right over the flock and protect them. The staff, we've all seen the staff. It's about six feet tall. has a little crook in it. And the shepherd uses that crook to defend or get off the wolves and the snakes. He beats down the bushes, but he also uses it for the sheep. When a sheep gets lost or gets stuck in the bushes or falls off and gets into some rocks, he'll take that crook and he'll hook it And he'll bring them back to safety. How many times have I had that crook pull me back to safety? Many times. More than I can think of. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. This is a tough verse to understand until you understand what David was talking about with the shepherd and his relationship with the sheep. We know that sheep literally don't sit at a table to eat. But you've got to remember where we are. Remember, we went through the valley. We're up on that mountaintop. We're ready to graze on that upper land. All looks great. The grass is green. There's water there. But before the shepherd will allow the sheep to eat, the shepherd must inspect the land first. And he'll go around and he'll look for poisonous weeds. Remember, they like to eat poisonous weeds. And he'll pull all those poisonous weeds up. And then he'll look for snake holes. Because you know what those snakes will do? A sheep will be walking along, they don't pay any attention they'll walk right up to a hole, and that snake will come out of that hole and bite them right on the nose, and it'll kill them. So what the shepherd does is he takes that staff, when he finds a hole, and he'll clear all the grass away from that hole. And then out of his shepherd's bag, he'll take some oil, and he'll pour that oil around the hole. And then he'll take that oil, and what does he do to the sheep? What does it say? Thou anointest my head with oil. He'll take that oil and rub it on the head of that sheep, every single one of them. And what happens is when that snake realizes there are sheep in the area, that snake will try to come up out of that hole. And because the snake's belly is smooth, did you know it cannot travel over that oil? It becomes a prisoner of its own hole. And for all those snakes that have already been out of the hole, when they come upon a sheep, and they sense that odor or that aroma of that oil in the sheep's head, it works like a repellent, and they go away and leave the sheep alone. Now put the two together. It says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Those sheep can eat their food right in the presence of their own enemies. And isn't that what God does for us? As many times as we are out there in the world and the enemies surround us, We have that protection and we also have that bountiful table. You know, God does not ever give to us sparingly, He always gives to us bountifully. And that's because if you look at the next part there, it says, My cup runneth over. We can't forget the cup. Do you know what happens when there's no stream for the sheep to drink water? There's always a well. And that shepherd has to work hard to get all that water up out of that well and he puts them in these huge cups. Now remember, sheep don't like to get wet. A good shepherd will always keep those cups full to the rim. And he does that so they don't have to put their head down into there and get their head wet because they don't like that. You know, our God never leaves our cup half full. It's always overflowing, isn't it? He gives us always more than we need. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. I love this last verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know what goodness and mercy are? They're God's sheepdogs. They always pursue us. They always follow us. Not part of our life but all the days of our life. They always protect us. They're always there. You ever seen a sheepdog? I mean, got two different color eyes. They're bright. They're attentive. Their ears are always up. They're listening for danger. They always protect the sheep. And that's what goodness and mercy do for us all the days of our life, is they protect us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I've saved the best for last. And I will... Not I might, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, when we read that part about where it says, I will dwell, it's not talking about a place, it's talking about a person, and that's us. And it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Look at the beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 23. What does it start with? The Lord. What does it end with? The Lord. Isn't that a great comfort to us to know that the Lord is always our beginning, is always our end. He's always on both ends of it. He's always there to protect us and to take care of us. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love the literal translation of that last part of that verse. If you read it exactly as it was originally written, It says, I will make my home in the house of Yahweh for all time to come. I love the way that's phrased like that. You know, that's Christ's promise to his children. You know, he doesn't say, I hope so. We say, I know so. And that gives us the comfort that we need. And if we can close it up in any way, all I can say is, in Christ, we truly have everything that we need. And all of God's people said, Amen.
2: Amen. I'm glad to know that Brother Allen knows so much about sheep because I have a question I'm going to ask him later. Why is it when they are out in the rain, they don't shrink? But anyway, I'll ask him that later. Thankful to be here with you this morning. As Elizabeth Taylor said to her last husband, I won't keep you long. (laughs) Thought you'd like that. Right now there's a whole generation asking who's Elizabeth Taylor. But anyway, I want to talk to you this morning about the power of the gospel I want you to turn if you will with me to Romans chapter 1 I want to talk to you about the Bible about the good news of Jesus Christ I don't imagine there's been any time in history when the Bible has been studied more than it is now I just saw brother Chris Taylor here what are you doing here, brother? If I'd have known that. I just, I saw his wife and I thought, wonder why she's here. And there, I look, and there he is. Brother, I'm glad you're here. I wish I'd have known ahead of time. Elder Taylor is the pastor at Antioch Primitive Baptist Church in Vero Beach. And so we're just glad to have you here, brother. That shocked me. And I don't mind showing shock. It's all right. The Bible has probably never been studied any more than it has been in the last 50 years. Archaeologists are digging around the uh, site in Jerusalem and the other sites. And uh, people have the Internet now where they can get the wrong information at 10 times the speed they used to be able to get it at. And yet, the Bible seems to be under criticism, under attack. I won't attack the gospel. That's not my job. And and it reminds me of the the art show and the art gallery. And they had a complete showings of the work of Michelangelo, the, the canvases, the paintings. He had already been established as an artist. While the tour guide was taking them through, there was one man in the crowd that kept saying things like, that doesn't look right. I wouldn't have used those colors. <laughs> Boy, that one's strange. That, that doesn't look like the real thing at all. After about five minutes, the tour guide stopped the tour, and he said, Sir, these paintings are not here for your criticism and approval. You are here on trial, not the paintings the gospel this morning is not on trial in this church the gospel is not on trial you are
1: that's right
2: it's your response to the gospel that's on trial not the gospel i want you to know this church we believe in the 1611 king james authorized version of the bible it is our sole source of faith and practice we do not use the London Confession of Faith, 1689 Confession of Faith, National Peace Meeting. We don't use any of those documents. Amen. We use the gospel That's right. as it has been delivered to us in our language by our God since it's his word. We're thankful for it. Therefore, I want to look at three verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16. And taking a look at the power of... Of the gospel. Verse 14. I am debtor both to the Greeks. And to the barbarians. Both to the wise and to the unwise. The apostle Paul. Now about 25 years into his ministry. Says I'm still in debt. To all people. All people. I'm still in debt. I'm in debt to share the great thing that has been given to me. If you have knowledge of the gospel this morning, no matter how small or how large, you are in debt to share that gospel. Amen. That gospel is a gift to you. That's right. You must share it. The great apostle Paul said 25 years after he began his ministry, I'm still in debt. To the high, the Greeks, and to the low, the barbarians. To the wise, and to the unwise. If I know the gospel, I have to share the gospel. That's, right. That's true of you and I. That's part of the power of the gospel. That's right. Is that it's shared from one person to another. Uh, the book of Acts, which I have not been able to stay out of for weeks now, no matter where I go. Do you see how the gospel is shared in the book of Acts? Mm-hmm. God could have. Given the gospel without men. He could have. He could have written in the sky. Could have. Could have done a lot of things. But he chose. This is his way. He chose to do it this way. Peter, you preach on the day of Pentecost. Ananias, you go get Paul. Philip, get that eunuch before he gets out of town. You see? By the way, Peter, you're done. Go get Cornelius and the whole family. There was a constant sharing of the gospel. They would arrest Peter. They would bring him before the court. He didn't defend himself. He shared the gospel. You see, sharing the gospel is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And everywhere they went, they shared the gospel because they felt indebted. Perhaps because it's been 2,000 years. Perhaps because we're Americans, we've lost the urgency to share the gospel. We just think everybody ought to have it if they want it and they can go get it. We've forgotten how God set it up. God set it up that we who have the gospel are indebted to God to share it because we have it. If it's been given to you, it's been given to you to share, not to hide. Wasn't there something about in the Bible about a light under a basket? <laughs> Remember that? You're supposed to be sharing the gospel. Paul says, I, I tell you. He says, I'm a debtor. Verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready, that word there means eager, to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. 25 years of preaching had taught Paul that every place needed the gospel, even Rome. Now, you say, why even Rome? Notice Paul said, and that are at Rome also. Rome is a special place. First of all, by this time, Rome had conquered the known world. They had fortresses in England and in North Africa, in Spain and in India. It was the greatest empire the world had ever seen. Paul said, you know what Rome needs? The gospel." <laughs> he said I'm ready to preach it everywhere and at Rome also now if he was eager to preach it at Rome should we be eager to preach it in Orlando you think Orlando needs the gospel <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I tell you what Rome thought they were something there were soldiers everywhere the great Caesar was there and by the way many people thought he was God on earth Roman soldiers everywhere coliseums, entertainment the likes of which the world had never seen Paul said place is weak some of the Roman philosophers even said it's a cesspool it's weak on the inside look strong but weak on the inside Paul said I know what Rome needs. they need the gospel they need to feel the power of the gospel now let's get down to where I want to be oh I want to give you an illustration now I have given this illustration so many times that some of you here remember it as well as I do You say, well, why do we have to hear it again? You need to learn patience. (laughs) There's some of you that have heard it. You've forgotten it. You need to be reminded. And there may be a few in the world somewhere that haven't heard it, but I'm going to use it again. Paul's getting ready to go to Rome. He wants to further the gospel. And the illustration is this, of the little boy who loved to go to the circus and loved to see the lions. That's the best thing. He liked the lions. And one night when the circus was in town, he snuck out of his house through the window and went to the circus. It was closed. He found the lions, and around the lion's cage were three drunks poking at the lion with sticks, throwing beer bottles at him, yelling at him, throwing rocks at him, and the lion was running back and forth in his cage, cutting himself on the glass and being poked with his sticks. The little boy went running up to one drunk, and he grabbed him by the leg and said, Please, stop it! you're hurting the lion and the drunk laughed and threw him off the little boy laying in the dirt got some help from the Lord he got a good idea and he snuck around to the front of the cage and he opened the door the best way to defend a lion is to turn him loose and the best way to defend the gospel is to turn it loose Amen, sir. Paul said I'm going to Rome I said well there's soldiers everywhere they, they don't want you in Rome he said I know that uh, there's people that have already gone to Rome, and they've already started lying about you and your preaching. He said, I know that. What are you going to do? I'm going to turn the gospel loose. Just turn it loose. I'm not going to defend Paul. I'm going to tell King Agrippa about Jesus. I'm going to tell Caesar about Jesus. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus. Well, aren't you going to defend yourself? Nope. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. That's right. And we're going to turn him loose in Rome. All right. Verse 16. This is the main part that I want to get to this morning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Funny language, perhaps. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But, you know, Paul wrote that because there was a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. After all, let's face it, he was a blue-collar worker in an area where blue-collar workers are looked down upon, Rome. He was Jewish. That doesn't buy you a lot in Rome. He was crucified. That's the lowest death reserved for the sorriest criminals they can catch. And he comes from a little province called Judea and was crucified in a little town Jerusalem, and now we're in Rome. Yeah. I could see how somebody could be ashamed. But I can also see it by first-hand knowledge. And I'm going to confess something, and some of you will confess it with me, and some of you may have to think a while before you confess it, but this is in here for a reason. There's times when we're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's sad but true. If that wasn't true, this church would be three times its present size right now. That's right. Because the power of the gospel would have taken effect earlier if we had spoken up quicker. And more sure, I pass up a lot of opportunities to tell people about Jesus Christ. I admit that about myself. I'll come home on an airplane, all pumped up from a good meeting, maybe preach four or five times that weekend. Get on the plane, I'm exhausted. Somebody will sit next to me, and I've got a choice. I can open my Bible. I don't have to beat them over the head. I just got to open it, and they'll start a conversation. First question: You a preacher? <laughs> Yes, we're the only ones allowed to have Bibles on planes. Thank you.
1: <laughs>
2: that's always the first question. Are you a preacher? Yes. What denomination? Second question. If I don't want to talk, I say Baptist. That closes it right there. They've heard enough about Baptist, they don't want to hear anymore. That always stops the conversation. If I want to talk, I say Primitive Baptist. They can't help themselves. <laughs> It's like, I chew. God bless you. this way, can I help you? No, just looking. If I say "primitive Baptist, they say, "What's primitive?" <laughs> then I got them. I'm taught for, for as long as we can stay in the air. That's right. If I want to, I must confess I don't take that opportunity as much as I should. I admit it. I'm tired of uh, having a pity party because I'm exhausted or just don't want to talk to people anymore that weekend, just want to be by myself. Whatever reason, I'm ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to admit it. That's in there for a reason. Paul knew, by the grace of God, that some of us would have problems with that. Some of us would not take the opportunities we should take to tell people about Jesus Christ. I knew a lady, personally, who lived across the street from a primitive Baptist minister for 11 years, and thought he was a Seventh-day Adventist because she saw him go to church on Saturday once in a while. That's a true story. Right across the street, and never knew that he was a primitive Baptist minister. I knew of the story of another primitive Baptist minister who was a janitor in a factory for 30 years, and when he died, nobody there knew that he had been a minister. Yes, sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel, and sometimes you are too if I went to your work, if I went to your neighborhood, and I took a survey, how many would know of the power of the gospel? Oh, they might know you go to church. I'm not talking about that. That's talking about yourself. Oh, yeah, I go to church. (laughs) You're talking about yourself. I want to know when the last time was you told somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you told them about his life, about his teachings, and what he's done for you. Uh, When I read this, the first time I glossed right over it, but I haven't been able to do that since. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. All right? Paul walks into Rome. I picture him poor, impoverished, has been making tents for a while, and he sees the mightiness of Rome. And he walks in with people that he calls brother and sister with a humble attitude. In fact, some of his followers are slaves. But what has Paul got to tell him? What is the gospel of Christ? Let me give you two places where you can share the gospel of Christ quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. If you want to write that down on your hand or something, go ahead. Later you can commit it to memory if you want. Here's a place you can go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. First thing, that the most important thing people need to hear in my opinion, and I think in Paul's, is that people need to learn that Christ died for their sins. That's very important. You've got a world out there that's sin-cursed, and some of God's children are out there, and they feel bad about it. And they think they're going to hell because they can't seem to get out of this pit. The first thing they need to learn is that Jesus Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures he was prophesied to do it he came to do it and he did it that's right first thing i like to tell people that what we believe is jesus christ paid for our sins nothing but the blood of christ i like to share that with people you ought to see the look on their face well what do you have to do to join your church i mean don't you have to go to catechism no (laughs) Well, don't you have to do this or that? No. What you have to admit is that Jesus Christ paid for your sins. That's the good news of the gospel. That's right. That's what makes it good news. When I first heard that in the Old Baptist, I got excited. That somebody wasn't telling me a million things to do to get to heaven. That according to the scriptures, Jesus Christ died for my sins. He took all my shame upon him. And I shouldn't be ashamed anymore. He took it all upon himself he paid for my sins he let him rain down upon him on the cross he just covered himself with my sins and yours to the point the father wouldn't even look at him wouldn't look at him and so jesus had to yell my god my god he couldn't use the familiar terms that he'd used before father he was so separated from god that would be like me calling my dad mr blanchard so alienated so separated He couldn't even call him Father. He had to call him my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? You say, well, he didn't really. Yes, he did. And you and I are the reason for it. It's our fault. Jesus hadn't done anything. He was the only one there that was innocent, and he was on a cross. I have to tell that to people, that he paid for my sins, and a righteous God will never ask me to pay an eternity for sins that have already been paid for an eternity. That's That's good news to me. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, you know, if I talk about great men, I can talk about George Washington. George Washington, great man. I can talk about his birth and his death. Ben Franklin, birth, death. Teddy Roosevelt, birth, death. I talk about Jesus Christ, i got to talk about birth, death, life. <laughs> what if Christ is not risen? That's in here. But he is risen, and we is risen. Because he is risen. That's good news. That's why Christians put so much stock in funerals. You say, well, if you Christians believe that the spirit and the soul has gone to heaven, why do you put so much stock in funerals? Well, I'll tell you why. I'm glad you asked. I believe Christ paid for the body, the soul, and the spirit. Amen. I believe, the Bible teaches, that when I die, my soul and my spirit will immediately go into the presence of God. Right. I believe that. I don't believe in soul sleep. But my body will still be here. I'm going to leave that with you. Don't thank me now. No. I'm going to leave it with you. But I expect you to treat it respectfully because it belongs to my Lord.
1: That's right,
2: And he's coming back to get it. The example I like to use, especially with young people, is me going to your house, big uh, steak dinner, steak and lobster, and I get so uh, rejoicing at the good dinner that I leave your house and I forget to take my coat. And I leave it over the chair. Don't talk to my coat. Glenn, you comfortable? Can I get you some coffee? Don't talk to my coat. I'm not in it. They'll put you in a rubber room for stuff like that. They don't. By the same token, don't be using it for a floor mat either, because I'm coming back for it. It's my coat. I paid for it. I want it hung up, nice cedar hanger. Nice, you know, one that fits. That'll be hard to find, but get one that fits. That's my coat. I own it. I'm coming back for it. Well, it's the same way with your body. Jesus is coming back for it. It's no less his than your soul or spirit are. That belongs to him. You say, well, what about people that die at sea? well, okay, we've done the best we could. We gave him as honorable a burial as we can. God who speaks to the dust and forms things out of it, will bring that body forward Amen. also. Amen. Uh, all kinds of burial, cremation, yes. But the laying of the body down with a good, solemn church service shows the proper respect more than anything else you can do with that body.
1: That's right.
2: That's why we do it. It's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ the fact that these bodies are now valuable. They're valuable to him. He died for them. He's coming back to get them. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, I'll give you another place to share the gospel quickly. There's one place. That one will give you three points to tell people. This one will give you five, I believe. 1 Timothy 3.16. Don't you hate when you go to 2 Timothy and you think you're in the wrong place? You ought to try that with everybody looking at you. Anyway, <clears throat> 1 Timothy three sixteen, The Apostle Paul, here's how he puts the gospel in four or five lines. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he explains the mystery. Here it is. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Amen. Now I've got an hour and a half on this plan. How am I going to get an hour and a half out of that? All right. Now I'm going to do that here, so calm down. Three people, got up to leave. God was manifest in the flesh. That starts in Matthew chapter 1. God was manifest in the flesh. That means he made himself known in flesh. He did not come into existence when he was born. He was already in existence. He just took on a body so that you could see him. He had been talking to his people. They weren't listening. They stopped listening to God. He said, all right, I'll come as a man. And then they'll see me. And then they'll listen. And some did, thank God. Some did. So, he was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. That's the day he was baptized. He was justified in the spirit. That's when the spirit came down and lit on him. And a voice said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. If you haven't been baptized in a primitive Baptist church yet, you've got that to do, and we'll give you an opportunity in just a little bit. But you've got it to do. Jesus Christ did it. He showed you the way. You ought to do it. You can't be a Christian without it. It's not possible. A Christian is a follower of Christ. You can't follow Christ and not be baptized. It just won't work. We got about eight people missing this morning that need to be baptized. I don't know if they're holding a meeting somewhere else or what. Maybe you know, they get together at Denny's. Let's hold out, fellas. I don't know, not you know, I don't know what. The, but but I'm telling that to everybody. You need to be baptized if you haven't been. God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. That gives you a chance to talk about baptism. Seen of angels. Do you remember the tomb? Where is he? I say, he's gone. <laughs> we saw him leave. We've been waiting here for you to get here so we can tell you he's in Galilee where he told you he'd meet you. Now head out that way. What are you doing here? He was seen of angels. He was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Now, you can easily talk an hour and a half about your God from those verses right there just from what you already know. Right. If you didn't want to learn another thing, if you're just dead set against learning anything, I hate knowledge, I don't want it. Just what you know, you can talk for an hour about that right there. To so somebody's sitting next to you in an airplane or visiting your home. This is how you share the power of the gospel. And it will change people's lives. It will change people's lives. Knowing this story will change their lives. If you're sitting here right now and you know that story, can you tell me it hasn't changed your life in some way? First of all, you wouldn't be here on Sunday morning. If it didn't have an effect on you, you'd be out there having a tailgate party or something. That's got to be a lot of fun. (laughs) Drinking beer and smelling exhaust. It's got to be a lot of fun. You can only imagine the great time they're having this morning. Anyway. If you think I'm a little skeptical, yes, you're right. Let's go back to Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God. That word power is where we get our English word dynamite. And that guy on TV said dynamite. Also, we get the English word dynamo from this word power. So let's use it that way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dynamite of God. It's the absolute power of God. And in the book of Acts, you saw that power over and over. Normal people walking along like the Apostle Paul, just normally going about his foul, evil business as he was. And the power of God struck him. And then he went to Ananias, and Ananias preached to him. And the next thing we see Paul coming in among the disciples, and Barnabas says, you can trust him. I've heard him preach. Wow, the power of the gospel so he says here this is the dynamite of God the power of God unto salvation uh oh now we're going to get in trouble now we're going to get in trouble some people say that in order to go to heaven they won't say in order to go to heaven they'll say in order to be saved that's a little less precise but in order to go to heaven You have to accept the gospel and believe. I want to take a look at some of what Paul has written to see if that's really what it means. Go with me to the 10th chapter of Romans and see if we can clear up the mystery. In the 10th chapter of Romans, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, former Jew, says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Does Paul mean the entire nation of Israel is going to hell and I wish some of them would go to heaven? (laughs) You know he doesn't mean that. You know he doesn't mean that. Read the second verse. For, I circled that for in my Bible, it means something. For, I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, there's not a Christian denomination in the world that would teach that your position in heaven is based on how smart you are. There's not one Christian denomination that I know of in the world that will tell you that your position in heaven is based on how smart you are. And yet Paul says, For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, a lot of energy, but not according to knowledge. There's some things they don't know. Does that mean they're going to hell? Obviously not. They have a zeal of God. Satan's children do not have a zeal of God. Only God's children have a zeal of God. Some of them are smart and some of them are ignorant. Paul said, I'm indebted to the wise and the unwise. If they're children of God, by the way, the Roman letters to the saints, if they're children of God, I'm indebted to those who will accept it, those who are smart, those who study their Bibles. I'm also indebted to those who are not smart and who read the TV Guide. You know, a preacher was visiting a house one time, and the mother said, Son, bring us the big book that we like to read. He came back with the series and wrote book catalog. But anyway, Paul said, I'm indebted to all. And here he says, for I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but, but not according to knowledge. What, what are they missing, Paul? What are they missing? Well, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. He said, I'll tell you what I want them saved from this useless endeavor of trying to make themselves good enough for heaven. They're trying to make themselves righteous when they're going to heaven by God's righteousness, not theirs. He said, I'm trying to free them from that. That's the problem. They've got a zeal, they love the Lord. Paul loved the Lord when he was taking off after Christians. He thought surely he was doing the Lord's work, just as wrong as he could be, but zealous and a child of God nonetheless. Paul said, now I wish I could explain that to my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters, and I've got some cousins over there, all the friends I went to school with. I've been hanging around with Gentiles now for 30 years, 25 years. I miss my Jewish friends, and I wish I could save them from trying to establish their own righteousness, not from going to hell. If you read over here, verse 14, verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now carry over what you already know. Is he talking about going to heaven? No. No. <coughs> He's not talking about that. He's not even in that concept. He's talking about people who are worshiping in error. And he says, I wish I could save them. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him they have not, in whom they have not believed? They can't. You cannot call on somebody you don't believe in. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? You can't. You cannot believe in somebody you've never heard of. How shall they hear without a preacher? They can't. The preacher must be there. And how shall they preach except they be sent? They can't. Not possible. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. If this means eternity, you owe me everything you've got. How do you like it? Don't ask me how I like it. (laughs) Okay, because I'm seeing a lot of riches here. If this is eternity, you owe me, the preacher, everything you've got. But it's not eternity. If I could make it eternity, I could probably get a raise. <laughs> I could probably get one of them big Benny Hinn tie clips. You know his tie clips are worth $3,000? I got a car that's not worth $3,000. his that, If you ever look at him, he's got this big... Well, anyway. I like these TV preachers. They got the big diamond rings. they They make all these hand motions and... The the lights glitter off them. But you see, they're teaching this. And so they can teach the congregation, you owe me all you've got because I have established your righteousness by my preaching. But you see, I can't teach that because it's not true. What Paul's talking about here is being saved here in time. And the only reason I can save you in time is because somebody saved me in time. I didn't make this stuff up. I heard somebody else preach it. You think, boy, that Brother Glennon makes all this. I don't make this stuff up. I hear other people preach it, and then I preach it. And so it saved me when I heard it, and it saves you when you hear it. And that's the power of the gospel, yeah. that it goes from one of God's children to the other. And the whole idea is to give God the glory, mm-hmm. not the preacher, not the preacher. Paul told him, I brought it, you know, I received it, and now I've given it to you. Told Timothy, I got it, you have got it, give it to other men who will hold it faithful. Just pass it on. That's the power of the gospel. This is God's book we're passing around. This is God's book we're talking about. And the power of it is that we pass it to each other by the grace of God. And it doesn't save us for eternity, but it does tell us who did save us for eternity. And then we glory in it. We get all excited about it. And then we try to change our behavior so that we reflect what we have received. i got to get back to that. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Um, It is the power of God unto salvation. Okay, we have that understood. Uh, By the way, this will teach you how to raise your children. This book will teach you how to raise your children. It'll teach you how to stay married. It'll teach you, this book will teach you how to be prosperous. It may not teach you how to make more money, but it'll teach you how to live on what you've got. This book will teach you everything you need to know about life here on earth. See? It's a good book. It's the power of God unto salvation. This book and the knowledge of it has kept me from doing things I shouldn't do that would have gotten me in trouble. Mm-hmm. That's what I call salvation.
1: That's
2: right. See? That's salvation. Right here on time. Okay. Now, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So somebody says, All right, all you have to do is believe. Hold on. Hold the phone. You come to my house. Is Glenn here? My wife says, he resteth. Does that mean I want to rest? Does that mean I'm thinking about it? It means I'm asleep. I'm already in the process of resting. More likely, is Glenn here? He eateth. (laughs) You've enjoyed that way too much. It doesn't mean I'm thinking about eating. It doesn't mean I'm cooking. Otherwise, she would have said, he cooketh. When it says he eateth, it means I've got my feet under the table, and a knife and a fork, and I'm eating. Well, here it says, this is the power of God to everyone that is believing, is in the process of believing. He's telling you that you need to be a believer, and you not to get to be a believer, but you need to be one to understand this. And so if you're sitting there right now and you're believing, it's not because you want to, it's because He already made it happen. It's like I've used this example, the miner's helmet with the light. Can you imagine trying to outrun that light while the helmet's on your head? That's another reason they'll throw you in a rubber room. Maybe for good on that one. You start chasing light beams, you're in trouble. Okay. That miner's helmet beam is like God's grace to you and I for eternity. Everywhere we go, he got there first. If I go to somebody... And I talked to them about the Lord, and they come up and join the church. I did not save them for eternity. They were already children of God, or they had thrown me out a long time ago. All I did was save them here in time, just like somebody saved me here in time. It's a thing we do for each other. And when I backslide, you help me. That's a biblical word, by the way, backslide. You help me. And when you backslide, I'll help you. That's here in time. You don't need my help in eternity, already taken care of. But you may need my help here. And that's what he's talking about. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it. To the Jew first and to the Gentile also. What's that mean? To the Jew first and to the Gentile also. One of the problems we have in our American churches is that it's the most segregated hour in the week. The most segregated hour in the week is the hour from 11 to 12 or in Primitive Baptist churches to 1210. (laughs) One of the reasons some of our churches are small is they forgot what Paul said. The gospel is going to all types now, all types. You don't have to be a white, round-eyed American to enjoy the gospel.
1: Amen.
2: You can be from any country. You can be from any nationality. We have even taken people in this church from New York. It's called breaking down the barriers. When you'll take it a Yankee, you'll just about take it anybody. But you know, I've got scripture for that. When the Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, when Philip took the eunuch, that eunuch was as black as the ace of spades. And Philip Philip said, I want you. Peter went to the first musician in the New Testament, Cornelius, you know he had the Italian band. But anyway, um, Cornelius, he broke down a national barrier right there. Broke down a national barrier. When he took the Ethiopian, when Philip did that, broke down a a racial barrier. And when God called Paul out of the Jewish religion, he broke down religious barriers. The church of Jesus Christ is for all God's people. All God's people. If God's touched their heart, They're in the right place. And the power of the gospel will do the saving. Now, what are we going to do about it? Okay. Don't get up. I'm coming right back. I started preaching in several places about the King James Version of the Bible. Supporting it. Defending it. Staying up late at night with preachers talking about it. And somewhere, somebody got the idea that I was hoarding King James Bibles. They got that idea because I told them I was. That the latest reports from Nelson Publishers, which is the biggest Bible publisher probably, them in Zondervan, is that they're going to stop printing the KJV because it's just not making any money. It's not a philosoph- philosophical thing with them. It's just not making any money. And uh, they've cut down their production of it and eventually they're just going to stop it. Um, I told them that every time I went to Walmart, I would throw one of these in the cart. and uh, we go to Walmart a lot, and that someday I'm going to have the world's supply of King James Bibles, and I'm from Chicago, and that means if you want one, you're going to pay. (laughs) Well, one day I found that box in front of my house, and when the bomb squad left and we opened it up... (laughs) There are about 42 King James Bibles that somebody sent me from Walmart. I don't know who it was. There's no name on it. The power of the gospel. You have something to do with the spread of the gospel.
1: That's right.
2: We are not absoluters here. We're not fatalists. If these Bibles are going to get into the hands of the people that need them, you're going to have to put them there. God is not going to move them like puppets in and out of this place to pick up a Bible. That's your job. I'm going to make these Bibles available at the end of this service to anybody that wants them today. I'll leave the box here. And if you can use one of these to give to somebody, I want you to take it. And make sure that in the next week or two, you place this in somebody's hand. And you tell them about Jesus Christ and why you want them to have this gift of this Bible. I don't want you going door to door. There's a bunch of people don't want this. They'll disrespect it. Closing on this, several years ago when I was teaching school, I had a Fellowship of Christian Student Club. There were some what they call back then headbangers. I don't know what they call them now. But they wore the dark black hair and the dark black lipstick and the dark black fingernail polish. And that was the boys. The girls were even worse. Big Doc Martens, 14 eyelet Doc Martens. Tough looking bunch. A couple of them liked me. I kind of liked them, to be honest with you. As I was leaving school for the last time, there were about 14 Bibles up on the wall that I was going to leave there. One of them came to me, and he said, can I have a Bible? And I said, no, you can't. And he said, why not? I said, because I don't think you respect it. And I'm not giving Bibles to people who don't respect my God and won't read it. He said, what if I promise to read it? I said, if you'll promise to read it every once in a while, I know you're not going to read it every day. If you'll promise to read it every once in a while, I'll let you have one of those Bibles. He said, okay. He went over there, and lo and behold, I had forgotten. There was about a $50 leather Bible there. And you know that's exactly where he went. You talk about trying your faith. He said, can I have this one? I knew what he was waiting for me to say, put that one back and get a cheap one. I said, certainly, if that's the one you want, you take it. See, to me, this word is precious. And if I can put one of these in the hands of somebody who really has a tender heart for it, I want to see they get it. But I can't do it by myself. I don't know that many people. Besides, people are suspicious of
1: preachers.
2: (laughs) They think if you're going to give them this, you're going to come back and bug them for the rest of their life. No, I'm not going to do that. I want you to feel free to take just one or two, however many you feel you can effectively give to somebody whose heart has been tendered by the Lord so that you can see the power of the gospel take effect.